Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out. Great to have you here. A lot to get through, a lot to talk about today. Much going on in the news cycle. Of course, we have the Gorsuch hearing. We will dive together deeply to do a deep dive. I guess that's another way of saying the same thing. We'll get into that. We will also, uh, hopefully, it depends on how it all goes, we may get, we'll get into uh, Obamacare and the simmering GOP revolt from within Obamacare. We will also talk a bit about the travel ban, updating on that, Russian fake news, maybe even some climate change. Got a very packed show with you today. Let's get into it with Gorsuch, though, first, because this is the big show. Journalists love this stuff. They get to watch for hours and hours on end while various political figures grandstand they pretend that this is all necessary of course for the people they pretend that this is all to our benefit meant to make things more clear for us on who the next supreme court nominee uh, or who the next supreme court justice rather is going to be so you're you can expect that there'll be a lot of grandstanding you can expect and of course we saw that today to get a window into the mind of the Democrats and how they view judicial philosophy, how they view the role of the Supreme Court, and it is illuminating to say the least. You see, the the central struggle is central planning. That's what you have to keep in mind here. That is the central struggle within our government right now. That is the main battleground between the two parties. Democrats view the judiciary as a very useful part of central planning, uh, as in smart people get to make de- so-called smart people. In some cases they are, in some cases they're not. They get to make de- uh, decisions for you. They get to tell you how to live your life, what the law is, what you're allowed to do, where your liberties start and stop. That's all determined by a bunch of judges, in some cases, a bunch of judges in D.C. So you have this guy Gorsuch, Colorado, 10th Circuit Judge, and he should be a very straightforward uh, choice. There's nothing that is surprising here at all. The guy is universally considered brilliant. He is universally considered to be a really uh, decent and honorable human being. Democrats are looking for a way to oppose him, although I wonder the end of the day, unless there's something they can come up with that's really damning, you'll just end up with somebody else from Trump's list of the judges, right? The president has to nominate and the Senate has to confirm. And we're told, of course, that also it's going to require 60 votes. So some Democrats are going to come 
along here. Um, that would be necessary. But uh, I think that from the interactions today that you saw, um, you recognize a few things. First of all, Democrats love class warfare. Very useful to them. Uh, and this comes up in the criticism against Gorsuch. They'll say, uh, I read this, this was the New York Times describing Gorsuch, that he has, quote, a cold and literal reading of the law and skewed toward business interests. Isn't it, what is the difference between a cold and literal reading of the law and just reading the law? This also then begs the question, if judicial philosophy is not based in originalism when we're talking about the Constitution, it's not based in a literal reading of the law, what is it based in? What you like? What you want? What you would hope the policy outcome of any uh, given case may be? If that is, in fact, where we are all, um, if that is, in fact, where we're all going to be putting our our sway, if we're going to be making choices and, and putting ourselves in positions where judges are able to just do what they want, um, what's the purpose of having law in the first place? Why not just leave it to somebody sitting on the bench to make the determination as he or she sees fit? They don't even have to be tethered to the law. Now, I know you'd say, well, that's kind of extreme, but when you hear, for example, what is it, uh, Senator, I believe it was Senator Feinstein, uh, who was talking about philosophy, and she says it should not simp- that one should not simply uh, evaluate legalistic theories. Let's play Senator Feinstein. I am concerned when I hear that Judge Gorsuch is an originalist who sits on the Supreme Court should not simply evaluate legalistic theories. They must understand the court's decision have real-world consequences. No, I'm pretty sure that a judge's job is, is in fact, to evaluate legalistic theories. If that is not a judge's job, I'm going to need someone to come up with a sensible explanation of it, uh, and, I, and I wonder what that will sound like. But this is this is very instructive. It's a lot of hearings, questions, back and forth of these senators, and it is mostly political theater. But it's instructive to see what the Democrats on any given issue, what they say, what they believe, what they hold up as their judicial philosophy. They will tear down originalism. Here you have Dianne Feinstein saying it's, it's not just about evaluating legalistic theories. No, I, I think that it is. And a lot of the problems that we have seen with the overt politicization of the court, a lot of the problems uh, that we've seen coming from this are the result of Democrats pushing for policies that they want and doing so as judges, not as legislators. We This has been longstanding now. We've seen this playing out before our very eyes. And you also get a sense of, and I brought up the class warfare issue because that's where they're coming after Gorsuch. They're saying that he, quote, harbors a right-wing pro-corporate special interest agenda. I believe that was Chuck Schumer making that claim. Uh, Right-wing pro-corporate special interest agenda. So they're trying to say that he's in the pocket of of rich people. Um, And they're, anytime they can exacerbate a class divide or they can make inequality the centerpiece of the discussion democrats feel like they benefit from it 
because they are the ones who are constantly talking about also fixing social justice issues, fixing inequality, fixing these things. How do you fix it? Well, of course, you need to just give the government more authority. You give the government more power and they will fix it for you. And in this case, the way the government has more power is judges having more power. Judges become instruments. They become tools of social justice. They become tools for fixing inequality. That is how the Democrats view it. It is in the Republican judicial philosophy or the judicial philosophy uh, supported by Republicans that they admit that there will be moments when a judge accurately applies the law and the out and they and they do not like the outcome. Democrats don't really adhere to that. They want an outcome. For them, the end justifies the means. And if that, in this case, means that a judge has to take the plain meaning of the law and pretend that it's not there, pretend that it's not obvious, they will do that. Judges will do that. And uh, perhaps no better place have you seen this than on the issue of Roe v. Wade, which always comes up in these hearings. And it, it's just a, it's just a preposterous political game that you've got Democrats playing here because They'll say, well, don't you let's go over the precedents. What do you think? Do you think this was rightly or wrongly decided? And a savvy judge like Gorsuch will respond, well, I'm not going I don't want to make any promises here. This is not about politics. That was really the theme of the day for Gorsuch. It's not about politics. A judge is not supposed to be a political actor in a black robe up on a bench who's just dictating. That's not how this is supposed to work for Democrats. It really is. And their fear is that somebody who doesn't take that philosophy, of course, is not going to do what they want. And so they'd rather not have somebody like that in the very powerful position of being a Supreme Court justice for life. Um, So they will ask, for example, about Roe v. Wade. In fact, I believe the term super precedent was even which is not a thing. There's no such thing as a super precedent. I think that was also Feinstein, Senator Feinstein. There's just precedent. Uh, There's stare decisis. There is some uh, weight given, some leeway given to previous decisions. And that is as far as it goes, because the moment they say, well, how could you? This is already decided or this is they start to play this game of what's settled law and what's not settled law. Any decision is open to being overturned. Now, that doesn't mean that judges should do that wantonly and excessively. But I could sit here and we could talk about any number of cases, right? Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson. You look at cases that were were poorly decided. And eventually the Supreme Court overturned those decisions. So just because it was done at one point doesn't mean it is done forever. And Democrats like to play this game. Well, oh, on these issues, it is done forever. Well, we know that's not really true. If there is a legal reasoning a legal rationale for overturning a previous decision that is sound that is constitutional then it is in fact incumbent upon the supreme court to overturn previous poor decisions but as much as anything else this is just an opportunity for various elected officials to stand up in front of the american people and take a position that allows them to show what this is like virtue signaling on national tv this is establishing for all those watching how important they view Roe to be, how important they view different decisions that are at the heart of progressive ideology these days. These are 
wedge issues. These are polarizing issues. They are places where people differentiate themselves from the political other. Roe being a particularly clear example of that. Uh, You got Gorsuch, for example, asked specifically about Roe v. Wade, and this is what he said, 41. Had you ever met President Trump personally? Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if he if he had asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges do. Okay. They don't do it at that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they shouldn't do it at this end either, respectfully. Gorsuch is saying exactly what I would want a judge to say in these situations. Now, I do also believe that there's a bit of gamesmanship at work here. And if that is the case, then I'm also all right with it because I'd rather have an—I believe in an originalist is the only legitimate interpretation of the Constitution. That you look at the words, you look at the intent, you look at what is written there, what, and you look at precedent, sure, as well, but you try to figure out what the intent of the founding was, what these words meant in their time, and you go from there. Otherwise, you're unmoored from any real judicial philosophy other than I want. It should be, and therefore, I will make it so. That's dictatorial. That's not judicial philosophy. That's putting far too much power, far too much of a central planning vibe into the hands of these judges. But if Gorsuch, back to the gamesmanship point, if he's being a bit savvy here, maybe even a bit sly by making sure the Democrats can't hammer him on any of this, I'm fine with that. Just as I said before, if his calling out Donald Trump on Trump calling out judges some weeks ago, if that's helpful to Gorsuch, fine. I Yeah, <laughs> whatever's going to help him get through this. He's being put through a lot. And I think a lot of individuals who are watching this and seeing how an esteemed uh, jurist, an esteemed member of the federal judiciary already, who was voted unanimously uh, into his current position. And and I I do think, sure, maybe an additional scrutiny is warranted for the Supreme Court. You can certainly make that case. But you can't go from 100 uh, 100 of senators think you're great for a lifetime appointment to the federal bench, but then almost half of them are like, you know, this guy's got big problems. We can't have him as a Supreme. No, sorry, don't buy it. So the Democrats already are in a very difficult place. There's no way for them to make their case without looking hypocritical, without looking like they lack principles, because they do. Um, but we'll get into Gorsuch a bit more. And also, I want to talk to you about some legal issues, including the uh, status of the travel ban. we got to talk about the Obamacare fight. Got a jam-packed show, everybody. Thank you very much for hanging out with me in the Freedom Hut. we got much more coming. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I'll be right back. So there's really two different ways you can look at judicial philosophy here in the context of the Gorsuch nomination. It's it's big stakes for Democrats. They get it, right? It's 4-4 right now. If it goes 5-4, they view it as, even though Kennedy, I mean, come on, conservative, really? But they view it as a blow to their last line of, well, there's the media, there's the bureaucracy, but their last very effective an immediate line of defense against a Trump administration, against the Republican agenda, with the judges. Judges, uh, I, I could give you some stats, and maybe I will later in the show, about how effective the Obama administration was in 
packing the federal courts with judges. I think about a third, I think about a third of sitting judges, and I'll, I'll scope out the numbers in the break, uh, were Obama appointees in one way or another. Um, but you have Gorsuch on the one hand saying that there's nothing to do, that, that your views, personal views, have nothing to do with being a good judge. 42. If I ask you to tell me whether Heller was rightly decided, could you answer that question for me? Senator, I'd respectfully respond that it is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. You don't approach that question anew as if it had never been decided. That would be a wrong way to approach it. My personal views, I'd also tell you, Mr. Chairman, belong over here. I leave those at home. Mr. Kotschel yesterday said that what he wants is a fair judge. And that's what I wanted as a lawyer. Democrats don't like this. They don't like that kind of talk about leaving your politics out of it. You got to have their politics and you got to institute them from the bench. So you can take the Gorsuch, uh, the, the Harvard Law federal judge with a record of tremendous, uh, well, tremendous integrity. Or you could look to Cosmopolitan. Everybody, if some of you are like Cosmopolitan, what's it? Cosmopolitan magazine, which usually on its front cover has you know, nine shades of, of lipstick for the summer, which is cool, which is fine. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a magazine that tells you that. But Cosmo today put out a piece, nine reasons constitutional originalism is, and then they have a bad, they BS, they have a bad word. Um, nine reasons constitutional originalism is BS. And they go into it and they write, the first one is, Nobody, no one is really an originalist. This isn't cosmopolitan. Uh, not even Scalia, who decided plenty of cases according to his own whims and opinions, is an originalist. And they go, they go, this is constitutional analysis by Cosmopolitan magazine, everyone. I, I'm just putting it out there. This is another, the Democrats, you know, kind of take some of these points of view on this. So I figured we could just get right to it. Cosmos, like totally, like just wants to do constitutional analysis. Uh, so, for example, they write, this is a quote from their piece. Until recently, judges generally interpreted the Second Amendment according to the same narrow interpretation. Uh, the Second Amendment doesn't give individuals the right to bear arms, but provides the right of militias. Wait, where's the part? I'm trying to get to it about handguns. Oh, yeah, here we go. Quote. Of course, uh, nor did the semi-automatic handguns at issue in the Heller case exist in the 18th century. Mine, I saw this earlier in the day. It just said handguns originally. I, they must have added in semi-automatic is my understanding, although I need to check on that. But so now it's semi. There were handguns at the time of the founding. So now it's like how how fast the handgun fires when every time you depress the trigger, that's whether or not it counts or so you can go to Cosmo for your analysis, too. The problem is that the analysis you get from Cosmo magazine is not very different from what you're hearing from a lot of the Democrat senators that are trying to grill Gorsuch. So, um, yeah, that's important to keep in mind here as we get closer to voting and the fight, the battle over who will be the ninth Supreme Court justice intensifies and intensifies with venom. More coming. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular... 
particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. This is amazing, everybody. Uh, I, I did check in the break. And, like, the cosmopolitan piece on, like, how originalism is just, like, total BS. It's such BS. Um, I looked at it, and in fact, they did change. They did change the original piece. Because I read it earlier today, and I remember reading, hmm, no handguns in the 18th century. Have they never watched Pirates of the Caribbean or anything? You know what I mean? Like, have they never seen any of these old, where the pirates have the old flintlock pistol? Or, I mean, that's even, well, in some cases, it's... If we're going to be clear, that would be 17th century, but 18th century as well. 18th century as well. Um, but then they change it to make semi-automatic handguns. But like originally, they were like no handguns. So like handguns are really bad. But okay, like I had to make it semi-automatic handguns. So they did change that. I wasn't crazy, of course. I was right, and I just want to put that out there. So you can take the Gorsuch side of the law means what the law says. Originalism is a judicial philosophy that is well r- rooted in a philosophical basis for judges not just interpreting things as they see fit based upon their whims, or there's whatever else the liberals come up with on any given day. Like, oh my gosh, like handguns don't exist. But let's get into uh, this with an an expert on all things judiciary. We're joined by Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former FEC commissioner and DOJ lawyer. He's also author of the book Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, great to have you. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, look, the hearings go on for hours and hours, and unless you're a, a Capitol Hill reporter, I think at some point you decide, you know, I'm going to get lunch. I've had enough. Uh, but what were your <laughs> What were your main takeaways from this today? Gorsuch is, from everything that I can see, you know, Gorsuch is a ninth degree constitutional black belt, and he can handle all this stuff. But what did you see? I well, I saw the same thing. He, he literally ran rings around these senators uh, who are trying to ask him uh, all these complex questions, hoping to hoping to get him. And it was very clear that people like Dianne Feinstein, for example, are so ignorant of the law that she really didn't understand the questions she's asking him. Yeah. Was she, she asked about, did she ask about, she was the one who asked about the super precedent, right? Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is a new thing. So I give her credit for creativity, but I had never come across that before. The super precedent, not to be confused with the normal judicial precedent. Yeah, but listen, that's typical. I, uh, listen, I actually had a confirmation hearing um, about 10 years ago in front of her for the Federal Election Commission. And she also back then tried asking me these complex legal questions because I was working at the Justice Department. And the questions had obviously been fed to her by her staff because she clearly didn't understand what she was asking me. And when I answered her question, I gave her very a very long answer explaining the law to her. She clearly didn't understand what I told her either. What do you think the the purpose, what are the Democrats that are on the, because like the, the Republicans were asking pretty straightforward questions that we would expect them to ask, and, and I'm not going to pretend they're not kinder and more favorable to Gorsuch. Of course they are. Okay, fine. But what do Democrats really think they're going to get when they push on, oh, that case that you decided about the trucker you know that that doesn't show that Gorsuch hates puppies and is and is evil. You know, I mean, like well, why are they why are they trying to dig into some of these more obscure cases just because they're trying to create this narrative that he's 
he's a friend to rich people and not nice to workers? Yes, you got to remember, this really isn't about Gorsuch and what he really believes about things. This is a show trial. And by a show trial, what I mean is that, um, look, all the all the groups that support these Democratic senators, you know, all the advocacy groups that have huge amounts of money behind them, these are the ones who help get out the vote for them, who uh, feed them money into their campaigns. They are all suffering from Trump derangement syndrome of a kind that's much worse than when George Bush was president. They, they want these elected Democrats to oppose absolutely everything Trump is doing. And so th- these Democratic senators are trying to be as nasty as possible, asking these what they think are tough questions, because they want to then be able to say to their supporters, see, we, we gave him a hard time. Yeah, we couldn't stop him from getting confirmed. Republicans control the Senate, but we gave him a hard time. That's what's, that's what's really going on here. It's a show trial. Yeah, it's, and it's virtue signaling for the Senate Democrats and also giving a little, a little love to their special interests and their base in the process, right? They yeah. get to grandstand and tell everybody. But can, can you walk us through, just as a process question here, because you have a bunch of Democrats uh, Senator Richard uh, Richard Durbin, Senate Minority Chuck Schumer, uh, they're out there saying that there's a 60-vote standard. Uh, that's not true, strictly speaking, right? I mean, you would need 60 votes to uh, for a cloture vote to override a filibuster, but you don't technically need 60 votes for a Supreme— you only need that if a filibuster is invoked in this case, right? How does that whole process work? No, that's exactly right. Um a filibuster, once, once a nominee is on the floor of the Senate, then uh, the Senate is opened up for debate about his nomination. And one way to, to try to delay a vote is to basically keep talking. And that's what a filibuster is. And it does take 60 votes to end debate so that you can have a vote. You can't have a vote actually on the floor of the Senate until everybody has agreed that debate will end. And that's what a filibuster is. It's an attempt to keep the debate uh, going um, so that there can be no vote. And it is true. Look, Harry Reid actually broke the filibuster for, for lower, lower, lower court, court nominees, right? That's how they stacked. Right. And isn't it about a third of the federal judiciary are Obama appointees now is my understanding? Yeah, close to 40%. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Even higher than a third. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why we're getting a lot of these bad decisions, for example, on on Trump's uh, uh, executive order on on travel. You know, the the uh, judge out in Hawaii who uh, issued the injunction was an Obama appointee. The judge in Maryland who last week issued an injunction against the travel ban was also an Obama appointee. So in in essence, (laughs) Barack Obama may be gone. But his political appointees are still in office in the judiciary, causing all kinds of problems. And uh, they could always change. Their, they did change it for lower court nominees. The Republicans have the majority in the Senate. So if they really wanted to, couldn't they change Senate rules such that they would be able to get through a they'd be able to get rid of the filibuster even for Supreme Court nominees? I'm not saying they would do this, but they could do that, couldn't they? Oh, listen, Senator McConnell has already threatened to do that. You know, McConnell, there we go. Said, McConnell has said that he wants to get Gorsuch confirmed by early April, which is coming up on us fast. And he, he has pretty much said uh, directly that if uh, the Democrats try a filibuster, 
uh, he may exercise the nuclear option and complete what Harry Reid did. And I got to tell you, I don't think that's going to happen for this reason. I think the Democrats are making a lot of noise right now, but I think in the end, they are not going to push a filibuster for this reason. Look, right now, we're in essence placing a replacing a conservative, Justice Scalia, with another conservative. If the filibuster gets busted now, the Democrats are going to be in a whole hurt of trouble when, as it's highly likely, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, Trump gets another replacement pick on the Supreme Court because it's highly likely that the next one may be one of the liberal justices on the court. And if the Democrats have busted the filibuster on this nomination, then Trump will be able to ease in whoever he wants without a big fight. So you think you think Gorsuch gets through at the end of this? Yes, I think the Democrats put on a big show, but they don't want the filibuster rule busted because they're really worried about the next Supreme Court pick, not this one. Now, let's uh, turn our attention for a second to the latest on Trump's immigration executive order. I keep trying to stay away from calling it a travel ban. I know everyone in the media, for the most part, is referring to it as that it's not a ban. <laughs> it does not ban all travel. Um, but what is the legal status of it right now? There been some, there's been some movement in the last couple of days. Uh, well, as you know, we had injunctions issued by uh, these judges in Hawaii and Maryland, and uh, I suspect what's going to happen is there's going to be emergency appeals filed by the Justice Department with the Courts of Appeal. I don't think they're going to get any different decision from the Courts of Appeal, particularly the Ninth Circuit, which, as you know, is one of the most liberal courts in the country. Um, and then they're going to do an emergency appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think they're going to try to time things so that that appeal doesn't get to the U.S. Supreme Court until Gorsuch has been confirmed to the court. So probably sometime in April. And the ju- the decision from the judge uh, judge out in Hawaii uh, that has been uh, Derek Watson uh, that's been that's right. been out there that started a lot of this. Is that a, is there any way you think that that survives if it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court? No, if the Supreme Court um, follows the law, it, it, they'll basically end all of this nonsense. And uh, what was little noticed was that last week, at almost the same time, the Hawaiian judge issued this decision. There was this great dissent filed in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals by five of the best conservative judges in the Ninth Circuit. And in 30 pages, they basically laid out why everything that the president has done is legal. It's not any different than what past presidents have done. And what these current judges are doing violates case after case after case of prior decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court, which has basically said the government's got almost uh, exclusive power to decide when they are not going to let aliens into the country. And and that is established law. And all these current courts, they're just ignoring that. So so this gets the Supreme Court and they follow prior precedent. Trump's going to win. Based on Judge Watson's reasoning here, is it fair to say that one could assert that if Obama had done what Trump has done here, it would be considered by Judge Watson or by other judges uh, who take the same approach to be okay because it is in fact Trump as a as a person as a human being that invalidates because of his supposed animus to Muslims that invalidates his executive authority here. Yeah, and that's what is so 
crazy, really bizarre about their rulings. Look, if Congress passes a law and a court looks at it, they're supposed to look at the text of the law and whether it's it's constitutional. Um, that whether or not that law is constitutional doesn't change based on the debate that occurred on the floor of of Congress. A, a law can't be constitutional if passed by one Congress, but not constitutional if passed by another Congress. Same thing with an executive order of the president. If it's constitutional on its face, and this order clearly is, the very same order can't suddenly be unconstitutional because it's signed by some other president. That's not the way our legal system works. Hans von Spakovsky is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's the author of Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Hans, great to have you. Thanks for sharing your expertise, sir. We appreciate it. Sure, anytime. Going to hit a break here in a second, team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be back in just a few. Because I like to give you all of the necessary facts here, I said uh, we, we heard 40% before. I said over a third, or at least a third. Uh, Obama has appointed 300, or Obama uh, had appointed by the end of his term, 329 judges to lifetime jobs, which is over a third of the judiciary. So when you talk about a lasting Obama legacy, the judiciary is among the most, will be among the most long-lasting and uh, is right now the most profound impediment to the Republican and Trump agenda. And we will talk, by the way, about those agendas and where they coincide and when they diver- when they're where they diverge. Uh, on healthcare in just a few minutes, but I, I wanted to—I had mentioned some sound, uh, some clips to you before. Moments from the hearing earlier today with Gorsuch, um, including <laughs> we have the uh, Al Fra- Al Franken talking about. Uh, let, let, let's play that one first. Al Franken pushing Gorsuch on the trucker case. Go. How do you think Merrick Garland was treated by the Republicans? Senator, since I became a judge. Ten years Pardon ago, me, Merrick Garland talking about I have here. a canon of ethics that precludes me from getting involved in any way, shape, or form in politics. There's a reason why judges don't clap at the State of the Union and why I can't even attend a political caucus in my home state to register a vote in the equivalent of a primary. Okay, but I don't think that this is a is you have to state your political views. That's not what this is about, how a Supreme Court Justice, who was nominated by the President of the United States. This is like in the Constitution. I think you're allowed to talk about what happened to the last guy who was nominated in your position. You're allowed to say something without being, about getting involved in politics. You can express an opinion on this. Senator, I appreciate the invitation, but I know the other side has their views of this, and you, your side has your views of it. That, by definition, is politics. Okay. I like it. Gorsuch holding them off. You know, you got, what does Merrick Garland have to do about anything? Oh, that's right, because for a few months, political journalists in D.C. were acting like every every water tower, every, you know, every school billboard out, out in front of every church across, at every small town across the country. They just had, you know, where's Merrick? Save Merrick. We need Merrick. Like... No one cared about this other than Democrats who are looking for stories to write about Republican obstructionism. Uh, we still have to hear about Merrick Garland. Uh, yeah. 
it stings for Democrats because they figured Hillary would win and then they could give us uh, the second coming of Justice Ginsburg or Sotomayor or um, one of those. Right. They thought they could give us a a clear left progressive dictate from the bench judge. And instead they got Gorsuch, who's doing an excellent job. Uh, Oh, and we have also Dianne Feinstein on super precedent. Play that one. One other question. Sure. Do you view Roe as having super precedent? Well, Senator, a super precedent is a... a, In numbers, 44... It it has been reaffirmed many times. I can say that. Yes. Yes, dozens. You got Feinstein there wanting everybody to know that she's come up with a term that is not a part of our judicial philosophy lexicon, but, you know... She, she wanted to make her point, and so she did. But I remember hearing that earlier today and being like, really? Uh, that's, a, that's a new one. And I think Gorsuch, Gorsuch handled that one uh, pretty well, all things considered. They're not going to be able to do much more than what they did today, which is just a lot of grandstanding. But I want to move us on to health care because I'm still—and this is going to be a return to our conversation about central planning. Well, like, I'm still— not sold on this GOP bill. So we're going to talk about that in the next hour. And um, we're going to be getting into all of the pressure that's being brought to bear on members uh, of the House by, from what we read, the administration saying that they better go along with this or else they may get primaried. Uh, This shouldn't be a case where Republicans have to be pressured by fellow Republicans or by the uh, Republican president in the White House to go along. This should be obvious. It should be clear. And it is not. It is not to me. Uh, I've been saying this to you all along. And not just because I want to stand around and be like, oh, I'm the most I'm the most free market, the purest of the free marketeers on health care. It's just not very good what I'm seeing. It doesn't tackle the fundamental problems of Obama. It, it, look, it doesn't repeal Obamacare. So you got to start there. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Is the GOP health care bill going to get passed in the House this week, they said Thursday. Uh, it's looking a little shaky right now. We're going to talk to Ben Dominich. He's the publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour, and writes a subscription newsletter called The Transom. It'll give you uh, all the latest on politics. And also has a piece that uh, made me think that he'd be a great person to have on today. He has a piece in The New York Times, How Trump Can Fix Healthcare. Uh, ben, great to have you. Great to be with you as always, Buck. Thanks Uh, for having me on. Thank you, sir. So, uh, look, I've been saying this now for a number of weeks. I'm I'm trying to take a a broad philosophical approach to this healthcare discussion because I think it's easy to get uh, lost in the weeds, and all of a sudden, Paul Ryan does his whole budget dance, and everyone's talking about, oh no, it'll get better, and everything. There are some very basic realities here that I don't think the GOP bill addresses, and one of them is that we don't really have health insurance. This is about health coverage and redistributing health coverage to different groups and different populations uh, in this country by age and, and other criteria. And 
you're saying in this piece that we need to just start with everybody has what it would be truly insurance and just start from there, meaning catastrophic insurance. Walk us through the plan. Sure. Well, I mean, your plan, not the GOP plan. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. My own plan. Uh, So this is something that I've thought for a couple of years now as as being an approach that that really ought to be uh, the the best given the current political situation. And I'll say this, you know, in with my with my own caveat that I have a lot of qualms about government being in the business of health of health insurance or health care regulation at all. I would vastly prefer that be something that was kept only as a state level issue. Uh, but given the realities that we have currently and sort of seeing the the framework of the GOP plan, I was really disappointed with it. And so I felt the need to come out and say something about this. When he was running for president, Donald Trump promised repeatedly that he wanted all Americans to be covered. And at least that's the way that I think a lot of people interpreted what he was saying. And he wanted it to be cheaper. He wanted it to be more available to people. He wanted people to be able to buy it at a a lower cost, but also to get high quality care along the way. And I think that what we really need to do here is break down the difference uh, and this this false sort of uh, difference between what insurance is for uh, and what and what basically has become a health care prepayment payment plan where you're p- sending money to insurers based on what you're going to need in the future. What I would what I would do, what I would advocate for is a national uh, health uh, health policy that was a guarantee to all Americans that was paid for via a block grant sent to each state based on the number of citizens that they have uh, that guarantees them. The, the basic uh, level of catastrophic coverage that is designed to prevent you uh, from having astronomical bills if you get hit by a car, have a terrible accident, or, or acquire some uh, terrible life-threatening disease. That's something that can be done at less than half the cost of Obamacare as a whole. And frankly, I think it would be a much better approach than the way that the Republicans are going about this because it would teach people what health insurance really should be for, which is not the day-to-day expenses that you have. It's not for birth control. It's not for you know, normal uh, dealings with chronic care. It should be about whether, you're, whether you get hit by a car, whether you have some life-threatening illness or not. And then on top of that, insurers can offer additional products to people who want to, uh, who want to purchase them, either for themselves or for their families, uh, to deal with and, and pay for the various needs that they have based on their situation. Uh, it's been really interesting since I wrote this piece in The Times to get the reactions all day long. I've been getting emails both from uh, right-of-center policy wonks and academics and people on the Hill, but also from left-of-center people as well, because the fact that it is universal is something that appeals to them because they know that Obamacare, frankly, was not achieving anywhere near the level of coverage that they had hoped it would be able to achieve when it was put in place. The fact is, if we covered every American this way, if we had a basic guarantee uh, of that with a means-tested deductible that would depend on how much money uh, you earn, so for someone like you or me, Buck, it might be $5,000 a year. For someone else, it might be $1,000 a year. But the issue is, you're still getting a plan that is that is going to take care of you in the event that something really terrible happens. Uh, but that, uh, but that on in addition, on top of that, you can have additional coverage as you as you are able to purchase it while guaranteeing this base level of coverage for everybody. Now, I agree with you. I've been saying this. I've been saying something similar on this show now for weeks, and that is that people have this notion, and we've really been led to believe, by the way, that once the Republicans are in charge, uh, and I know you wrote in your piece that you had a serious medical issue you dealt with recently, uh, being a celiac, and I've had to deal with some things in the past where I've really been through the system, and you know, you, you get to know it firsthand that all of a sudden you realize how bad it is. Yeah. But people have this idea that I mean, I mean, most people in this country, because it's what we're led to believe that we're all going to be able to have great plans, go see whatever doctors we want, have access to world class care, and more or less pay twenty bucks as a copay. 
or you know, mm-hmm. there'll be some very small percentage of our healthcare costs that we're really going to pay, and either our, our employer or the government's going to pick up a vast majority of the overall cost. That's just not reality. It, that, that's not feasible. That's not going to happen. It really and, isn't. Go ahead, Ben. It really isn't, and and it's and it's and just it's, as you've experienced this as well. You know, unlike any other aspect of when you're when you're making a purchase, when you're deciding something about where to go, you have no real uh, there is no real motive on the part of of patients to act as consumers and to think about these things. Is it cheaper for me? I just had to get an echocardiogram. Is it cheaper for me to get it at the place where the doctor told me to get it or is it cheaper for me to get it 15 minutes down the road road in an Uber? It's impossible for me to be able to tell that, you know, and that's something that I think in order to change that we have to have. Uh, people think more about as consumers when they're when they're dealing with these things that are not emergency situations, which, let's face it, is most of the time. Most of the time you go to the doctor, you're not, you know, uh, bleeding out in an ER or something like that. You're dealing with something that is that is a much more gradual issue that you're going to have to work through. And you can buy insurance plans that are tailored uh, for you to deal with those if we are able to get rid of a lot of these other regulations. The side benefit of what I'm talking about as a plan is that you you basically can sweep away and render moot so many different aspects of, of health insurance regulation today that are designed to have a ton of different essential benefits for everyone, that are designed to force insurers to do things that don't make sense within the marketplace. Instead, what you have is a, is a system that is more designed for people to think about insurance the way they think about other products uh, and understand that it should be there for the extreme situation to make sure that nobody ever goes bankrupt in America from having these health care costs. I think that would be something that's more consistent with Trump's promise to Americans that would deliver on it, uh, and that, frankly, I think is is possible given the political realities of the moment. Just given the fact that there do seem to be enough votes uh, to to really prevent uh, Ryan's plan from going forward as it stands, uh, either it, it, just in the sense that even if they are able to squeeze it through the House of Representatives, it's going to be have have to be rewritten significantly in order to pass the Senate. And on that point you're making, by the way, uh, I just want to say that the pushback that we see when I believe it was uh, Jason Chaffetz, Representative Chaffetz of Utah, said you you might need to pay for health care instead of an iPhone, which was very similar to what Obama had previously said before that. I I think it's it's instructive for everyone watching and, and listening to that. That the immediate reaction is, oh, that's such a ridiculous and terrible and and wrong thing to say. Well, no, actually, this is if you're going to have health insurance instead of subsidized health care, a very complex system of government mandated subsidized health care, there are going to be more costs associated for a lot of including people with that have employer sponsored plans. I mean, this is yeah. going to be, you know, you're going to go to the doctor. It's going to cost you 100 or 150 bucks or 200, but whatever it is. And that will become normal instead of $20 copays and all the other ways that people are constantly trying to, you know, hit your deductible, all this stuff and the way that they do reductions. Are you is the is the uh, agreement going to mean that the doctor's bill goes down just based upon, you know, that's it's one of the only places you'll ever see this. The cost isn't the cost just based upon what you're getting. The cost is the cost, depending on whether or not there's a relationship between your insurer and the doctor. I mean, that's just crazy. But it means more. Yeah, it means people have to pay, Ben, and that's politically, I yeah. think, difficult. It is difficult, and I think that the other thing that comes into play here is, you know, we understand that the the you know you play stuff like this out, and the motivation is always to ratchet up the number of benefits that are going on, the number of things that are guaranteed in each plan, because it's easy for politicians to do that and say we're going to give you free X Y Z, not pointing out that that's going to be reinterpreted during your you know during your premium, and you're going to be paying for it yourself without necessarily knowing that. 
the difference that I think would happen with the kind of plan that I propose in the Times, uh, a plan which you know is consistent with some ones that have been proposed in the past and that was outlined in an essay that I linked to in the Times piece to uh, uh, that was ran in National Affairs a couple of years ago, is that you have the ability with something like this to block grant it to the states to give states you know a set amount of money based on uh, their insurance pools, based on the people who live there. And then if the states want to offer additional benefits, so let's say California wants to offer a bunch of additional benefits in their plan, which is something that they've you know, typically wanted to do, that's fine. California needs to pay for that. All right. We, we can have a national guarantee that says you know, there's no citizen of America who's ever going to go bankrupt because they get hit by a car or because they have some terrible, uh, uh, terrible illness. But if you want to have a bunch of other benefits – in your plan, then your state can do it, and they're going to have to find those tax dollars themselves because then they have to balance their budgets, unlike the federal budget. So that's the kind of side of this that I think would actually be very beneficial. It would send those decisions closer to the voters, closer to the people who are there, and they will understand that that's going to come out in their tax bill the next time that they're paying it. What is your assessment at this point of both the uh, how would you grade the GOP uh, American Health Care Act as it stands? And also the the political realities here as to whether you think it will pass. And clearly the, the heat's getting turned up. you got members of Congress being told, you better pass this or else you're going to get primary. Yes. You know, so a couple of things about that. I, I, I personally and, you know, listeners to your show probably heard me talk about health care for years, and, and I appreciate the opportunity all the time. Personally, I would grade this uh, this uh, Paul Ryan measure uh, as as basically a D to a D minus, it is just nowhere near what the kind of replacement they needed to pass, you know, looks like. In fact, I wish that they had just stuck with their original 2015 bill that they all voted for, uh, which was, you know, frankly, significantly better. I would have given it at least, you know, a C plus or a B. But right now, what you're looking at is a bill that really does not match up with the promises that were made uh, to the voters, and I think that the political realities of it are are significant and difficult. Right now, you shouldn't trust really anything that's going to come out of the House of Representatives because they, they tried to make a bill that would make moderates in the, in the Senate happy, that would please the Senate parliamentarian because of all the limits on what they can do via reconciliation. Instead, I think they ended up with something that was sort of too clever by half, that didn't really achieve what they wanted to achieve and didn't really achieve what people promised to achieve. You know, President Trump went to Capitol Hill today to try to urge people to support the bill. But the indication that I really have is that they're going to have to twist a lot more arms in the next 48 hours to make it happen. I think they might probably they might end up getting there because a lot of the time bills like this end up having a way of getting there. But the problem is that when he says things like, you know, we'll primary people who don't who don't vote along with this, the guys who are going to not go along with this the most are going to be the most conservative members of of the of the House who are probably people who won their districts by a good 20 points more than Donald Trump did. You know, in, in typically, you know, in a lot of those places, these guys are actually safer in terms of uh, in terms of their position because of how conservative their districts are. The only way to really beat them would be by running to running to their right as opposed to running from the center at them, which is what it would be if you were running in defense of the Ryan bill, which every indication we have is is just not very popular with people when they when they answer the pollsters. I think at the end of the day, they probably will get something out of the House. How much it looks like this, though, when it goes through what it's going to need to do in the Senate, 
uh, where you're going to have a bunch of different squabbling factions, everybody from Rand Paul on the right, who really wants to achieve a conservative solution, uh, to people like Rob Portman, who you know basically are just in there to defend their, their Medicaid expansions in their states. A lot of different priorities going on there. And so I think you're going to end up with something that looks very different than this. And it's going to be kind of a Frankenstein monster, Frankenstein's monster of a health care bill that doesn't really make a lot of people happy. I have to say, I, I, I agree. And I'm, uh, it's disconcerting that this is the first major legislative initiative of this new Republican Congress and under this new president. Uh, and they're just sort of telling us that you, you got to go along with this or else. And it's like, why? You know, I was willing yeah, to overlook a fair amount to get to this point. You know, I, I'm not willing to overlook everything. <laughs> <laughs> Why though? <laughs> like, this, you know, this, this was this was the signature thing. Obviously, Trump acknowledges that in, in the sense that every time he talks about, it, he says we have to get this done. We have to get this done. I just wish, and this is the reason I wrote that that times up bit. I wish that he would play a more aggressive role in this process because the fact is, I think that Trump, when he whatever he tends to talk about healthcare reform, tends to be bolder and to offer basically a, a bigger change away from where things currently are. Uh, you know, in uh, compared to what Paul Ryan and others are supporting. Now, I don't agree with Trump in a lot of senses, but I do think that when it comes to his promise that everybody would be covered, there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it a lot cheaper than Obamacare in a way that is straightforward, that makes a lot of sense, and that would change the way people think about insurance, which I think would be very important for the long term. Last one for you, Ben, real quick, because we got to go on a break. Uh, if everyone is in a position where they could buy insurance, and but, but they're not forced to buy insurance by law— mm-hmm. Doesn't that mean then that if people choose not to, then then they do have to deal with the financial consequences? Doesn't mean they get denied care, but it does mean that they're going to run out of cash. I think that that is something that you would have to deal with. But the reality is that this is this is a carrot and not a stick. And I think it's something that would be an easy carrot to actually administer, particularly if you go into the states where they already have so many trigger points where they can sign people up in the sense that, you know, just as you go into a DMV and they prompt you to update your voter registration, this is something that could be as ubiquitous as that. And I don't think you need that mandate if you put it in that position and make it very easy to do and simple, which would be the true in the case of these catastrophic plans in the sense that they don't even need to do a health evaluation of you in order to sell it to you. Ben Dominich is publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour, and also the author of the newsletter, The Transom. Check out his piece today at NewYorkTimes.com. Ben, great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you as always, Buck. Going to hit a break here, team. 844-900-2825. What do you think of the GOP House bill? Should we go along with this thing? Or you agree with Ben and me that this is not good? Uh, Needs to be a whole lot better. Uh, We'll hit that and more right after the break. Phone lines are open, everybody. You're lighting them up. I appreciate it, Team Buck. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, tweet of the tweet of the day definitely goes to that's it. We should do that. Let's do a segment from that. We should do a recurring thing on this radio show. Tweet of the day. Uh, Maxine Waters, get ready for impeachment. <laughs> I just saw this. Oh, Cong- Congresswoman Waters. That's awesome. Get ready for impeachment. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think you have the numbers Congress, Congresswoman Waters, but very, uh, classic. 24,000 retweets of that, by the way. Uh, we got a lot of lines lit up. I want to get to your calls now. If you're on hold, stay with me. And if you want, we got another spot or two open. Give us a ring. Uh, let's start with uh, Richard in West Virginia, WWVA. What's up, Richard? I don't want to ask why, because I heard you earlier talking about Supreme Court judges. 
uh, they get a lifetime position. And I've always well, I've wondered this for a good while. Nobody else in Congress gets any uh, lifetime positions. Why or why are Supreme Court judges given a lifetime position? Well, it's supposed to be so that they have uh, their there's an impartiality attached to it, right? So that they don't have to think about reelection or they don't have to think about uh, the next term. But but I, I agree with you. It seems to me, why not have them for uh, certainly for the lower uh, lower federal courts? Why not have 10 years? Why not have so I don't know, come up with some cool number that we all agree on. But lifetime does seem like a long time. I, I, I think that's that's a fair point to make. But it's supposed to be to keep them from having to worry about shifting with the political winds, which, by the way, they do anyway. Uh, the, the judiciary is a lot like the media and that we've been told fictions about it for a long time. And I would just rather everyone be honest about stuff. I don't like Orwellian word games. I don't like euphemisms. Let's just call things what they are. And right now, the Supreme Court is viewed as a political football by both sides. It just is. It is. We can pretend that it's not and it shouldn't be, but it is. And you'd also have to wonder why, as you say, like, other politicians know what they run for. They're voted in by the people like me and you, the American public. Why is it? Uh, why aren't judges? Uh, why aren't they give their position of what they get? Why don't they have to be elected by the public like everybody else? Very interesting. I mean, you, you can go back. You can go back to the you know co-equal branches and the structure of the judiciary as a as and the separation of powers. And there's a deeper philosophical. And thank you for calling in, Richard. There's a deeper philosophical point, perhaps, to be made about you know, we we have uh, I believe prosecutors in you know prosecutors in many counties have to run for re-election. You know, DAs they have to run. Now, I don't think we want judges to be completely subject to political whims and to the tides of politics as they uh, come in and recede. Uh, but I also can understand why we look at this and say to ourselves, well, if we don't have term limits for judges, which we don't, maybe we should start to be a little, a little more liberal about removing judges through the impeachment process. And that this is something that on the federal level this is something the Senate can do. Maybe we should start to think about that a bit more. More coming. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. All right, we've got uh, Micheline in New York State online on the iHeart app. What's up? Yes, hello. Hello. Thank you for listening to the show. Hi. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Yes, my name is Michaeline Krasinski from Little Falls, New York. And um, I'm just really upset because here we have Donald Trump trying to help our country out. And I'm sorry about our country. Everybody's so narrow-minded. And he's just trying to help. He doesn't have to be president. He has plenty of money. And I just don't get it. When you mean you don't get it, why? Why you don't understand why people, which would have to include me in this, and Ben, who was just on, yeah, and 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 Ovik Roy, who's been on before, who's a 
conservative health care expert. Uh, all of us, why all of us think that the GOP bill is not very good? Because keep it, it's it's the Congress. Congress is what's putting this forward, not Donald Trump specifically. He's saying we can negotiate over this and it'll get better. So, but he didn't write this bill, so it's it's not really a criticism of Trump. It's a it's criticism to him, though, that things are going to get better in our world. I mean, even with tariffs and everything, I mean, he's not going to put up with the crap, and that he's not going to allow people to come over and kill us. You know. Oh, I, I, but Micheline, are you are you can, are you wondering why there's opposition to Trump generally, or are you wondering yeah. why there's opposition to Trump yeah, specifically on health care? Because no, generally, no. I mean, that's a whole that's like a whole show. We could just sit here and talk about why people hate Trump. Yeah, I know, right? Right. I mean, I that's know, right? I don't think you need me to even explain that. I mean, it's pretty clear that the, the, the news cycle, day in and day out, is one long explanation of why ninety percent of journalists hate Trump. Uh, but on health care, I, I think that this is. You know, I was I, I mentioned this to uh, to Ben when we were uh, doing the interview, and there's a lot that I'm willing to overlook, or or at least I'm willing to stomach when it comes to, uh, you know, I mean, I don't really want to be hearing much about a trillion dollar infrastructure spending program from a Republican president, but all right, I mean, let's kind of see. I mean, it's not what I want to hear, and also the way that he's spoken about some of the surveillance issues that have come up, not what I want to hear, but. In the aggregate, or looking at this, looking at this overall, I think he's going to do some really good things. But healthcare isn't one that they can get wrong. This is really important. Healthcare is not something that they can mess up and then try to rebound. You see what I'm saying? It's it's too important of an issue, to, yeah, politically and to me and to you and everybody listening. Trump isn't going to just say stuff out of his, you know what? Because he knows what he's talking about. Well, he's, I don't know, something. He's more forward. And I'm telling you, people are going to find out he's going to be the best for our country anybody ever could imagine. I'm telling you. All right. Well, Micheline, I, I, I hope. He, Go ahead. He will be. He really will be. Right, you well, know? Okay. Okay. I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I hope you're no, right. And a lot of people listening hope you're right, too. Uh, but hoping is not enough. I, I need to be clear about what my expectations are uh, based on what the administration is doing day in and day out. So. We'll continue, to, we'll continue to follow it. Uh, and uh, Micheline, right? Is that how you say it? Thank you. Yeah, Micheline. Micheline. All right, I was close. Uh, nice thank you for. What's up? <laughs> nice talking to you. Oh, nice talking to you. Thank you very much for calling in. Shields high. Uh, so, oh, by the way, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna like. I'm gonna just tell you about this. This isn't the tweet of the day. This is another tweet that's out there. For, I'm sure a lot of you aren't even on Twitter, so this is. This is how journalists talk to each other throughout the day. Now, I think that's mostly it's Trump and then the journalists all talking about Trump. That's most of what Twitter is or, you know, Ariana Grande stuff. That's right. That's that's cool. And and Biebs, the Biebs. Is that what we call him now as well? The Biebs. Now I sound like an old man. I'm not even that not that old, but or, uh, am I a it's a, be, be, a believer, a believer, right? A believer. OK. Uh, I have found myself on more than one. This is what people also talk about on Twitter is what I'm saying. I found myself on more than one occasion being like, I, I kind of like this song. And then someone's like, it's a Justin Bieber song. I'm like, oh, no, I, 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 no, I won't take it back. It's actually pretty, it's pretty catchy. Uh, groovy tunes. Okay. Um, but on Twitter, you have people like Nate Silver, who I've mentioned before, who's a, 
a numbers guy. Uh, I think we call him a statistician, or at least he's a, what is he? He's the editor-in-chief of 538. Um, he, just a few minutes ago, those of you listening to the show will know that I was talking with this to, at some length before, he tweeted out, Seems like Trump Ryan should have begun with a bill that either moderates, I'm sorry, that either moderates, <laughs> Buck, learning is fun, reading is fun, Buck, that either moderates really loved or conservatives really loved and bargained from there. Instead, they began with a bill that nobody loved and are having to fight a two-front war. That's tough to negotiate your way out of. What has yours truly been saying? I'm just saying. Anchoring. We talked about this as a negotiation tactic yesterday. If you're trying to get the most conservative bill possible, your first offering should be the most conservative version. Anybody who's ever done any contract negotiation. Have you ever had somebody, when they're doing work on your house, and I'm not trying to pick on general contractors here. You guys are very important to society and do great stuff. But do you think that when somebody says, well, we're going to redo your bathroom, and they put out the first estimate, and you're going to negotiate from that, and then you push back, do you think the second time around... Uh, you know, you're going to be able to say, well, um, let's just completely forget your first offering and uh, I'm going to give you my number. No, they've already put a number out there. That's now what you're negotiating with. Otherwise, the negotiation's likely to completely break off, right? If he says 10,000 and you say 2,000, well, it's a lot, a lot of daylight there, right? But if somebody, if it's really worth 10,000 and he says 12,000, you know, now, now he's already pulling you in the direction of what reality is and he's hoping maybe he gets a little more, but at least he'll be close. With this health care bill, it's like they've gone in the opposite direction. You know, they've, they've decided that they're going to make, uh, they're going to negotiate against themselves unless, and this is what I really believe, they don't want it to be that conservative because they know that a really conservative bill, and you you heard this from Ben before, and maybe we'll have Ovik back on next week, Ovik Roy, to talk about this too. Uh, those are two of the best guys that I know of on healthcare. I mean, these are the, these are guys who who read the entirety of Obamacare, who read the entirety of Obamacare, who, who read all these bills top to bottom. I've read as much of the American healthcare bill as I can stomach. I have gone through a lot of Obamacare, but I'm not a healthcare policy specialist, so I didn't spend all, I didn't go through all 2,700 pages of Obamacare, but uh, they look at this and they come away with many of the same conclusions I do, which is that people want to believe the government's going to just swoop in and take care of them. That's popular. That's what people want. Everything else is noise. People want the government, and when I say people, I mean a majority of the American people have an expectation that government's going to pay their health care costs. And it's not, just like it's not popular to say, we have to raise the retirement age, we have to deal with entitlements, we that's not a popular thing because you're, it's like telling somebody to, you know, eat their, I was going to say eat their Brussels sprouts, but I think we all know that Brussels sprouts prepared properly are delicious. It's really been a much rehabilitated vegetable now. I think Brussels sprouts have made quite a comeback in the 21st century. When I was a kid, it was like Brussels sprouts and cauliflower getting no love at all now. But nobody wants to be told to eat their, eat their peas. I think peas are good too. I'm actually pretty much a vegetable guy is what we're finding out here. Um, I don't, what, what's like, what's a gross thing? Nobody wants to tell to eat their, eat the liver. I, I don't like organ meat, also known as sweetbreads. One of the greatest lies since if you like your healthcare plan, you can keep it is just to call anything that is an organ meat sweet bread. It is not sweet. It is not bread. It is gross. Um, but it is a lie that is perpetrated against all of us. Uh, what the heck was I even talking? I just got completely, I sometimes will, this will happen, I will completely derail myself. Oh, telling people that 
economic reality is that they're going to have to pay more for their health care. They don't want to hear that. They simply don't want to be told that that is what has to happen here. Remember, the free market means winners and losers. That's what a real free market situation. Now, Ben is putting in the stopgap uh, in his well, in his idea here, and it's an idea that I've forwarded as well and I believe in, of, okay, catastro- actual insurance, catastrophic care, and making it possible for anybody. And it will have to be at some level based on risk profile too, which means age. I thought it was fascinating to see all the pushback against the GOP bill because people were saying, well, now seniors are going to have to pay more. Yeah, that's that's reality. Older people are more likely to get sick. So why wouldn't older? Oh, you mean the young are having to subsidize the old? Once again, we see this. People like to talk about how Medicare is something you pay into, and that is true. But many Medicare beneficiaries take a lot more out of the program than they pay into over the course of their earning cycle of their lives. So that means the taxpayer is picking up a lot of the tab. Not all of it. It's not welfare, but it's certainly taxpayer subsidized in many cases. This is, again, cold hard facts, economic reality, financial reality. It's never fun to be the guy who says there's no Santa Claus. The Democrats are in the game of just telling everybody there's a Santa Claus. And Republicans are are the Grinch and are bad. It's not. I know it's a little late for Christmas analogies here, but they still work. Barry in Mississippi on the iHeart app. What's up, Barry? Yo. Hey. Yo, Buck. How are you? Good, hey. sir. How are you? What was that? <laughs> anyway, listen. I've been wanting to, to spread my feelings for a while, and I finally got the nerve. Spread your feelings. Remember back in twenty. <laughs> Remember back in twenty ten, when the government said. You're going to buy insurance, you know, or else, you know, men with guns come to your house, et cetera. We were like totally outraged, weren't we? Yeah. The whole country was up in arms. We went and stood on bridges with signs. That's that's how outraged we were. Well, where did the outrage go? Why are the ultra conservatives, and I'm pretty conservative myself, I squeak, but I'm, I'm talking about the rigid right. Why are these mandates no big deal now? Everybody's squawking about Medicaid, Medicare. You know, government controls, which are the mandates. Somebody said, wait, we want them to get rid of the tyranny. Forget the mandates. Uh, duh, the mandates are the tyranny. Obamacare is the mandates. Let's just get rid of that, no matter what we got to pay the moderates just to get, you know, to get this through. And then, you know, then this will all work out. Is this going to be the last health care bill ever? You know, why do we have to pretend like this is it or we got no other chances? Now, we got no other chance. Regarding the mandates, if this bill fails, will there be a second attempt at repealing the mandates? I don't think so. If people can't wait for a phase three, how can they wait for a second edition of phase one? I'm bothered. I'm bothered. I'm afraid we're going to get stuck with the mandates forever. Yes, I I uh, think that's what this is leading us towards. And I also think it's it's important to point out that unless— there is a drastic action taken by the Congress that works, where people see premiums go down, where people see the benefits of a conservative free market approach. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be at least rooted in those principles of choice and competition. And if unless that happens, guess what? We're just waiting around, biding our time until the Democrats all of a sudden have the votes again on the Hill and in the House, and they push through an even bigger entitlement state 
uh, health care reform. I mean, that's you know, you, you have to win on this issue. You, you can't just bide your time and, and wonder what's going to happen in the future and taking small well, steps, small measures. I know what they're saying is, you know, don't throw the temperature up all the way, Buck. You know, the sauna is going to be too hot. You got to do step by step. <laughs> but I think we got to throw the water on the coals and we got to get it steamy in there. My analogy is weird, but I, I think, think I, I think you know what I'm saying. We got to go all in on this thing. But Barry, I got to run to a break, man. Thanks I, for calling in from Mississippi. And uh, yeah, by the way, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast of Buck Saxon with America Now. Go on iTunes, type in Buck Saxon with America Now. You can listen anywhere, anytime, download it, play it, send it to your friends, and pass the buck. By that, I mean, I mean, you can't physically literally do that. I'm, I'm a bit heavy. Um, but you can tell any of your friends you want about the show, which would be great. Be like, hey, there's this cool radio show, Buck Saxon with America Now. Interesting discussion that's been happening recently um, about, well, everything having to do with uh, surveillance and the surveillance state. Uh, And you have Representative Adam Schiff talking at the, he's of course, uh, what, he's on the Intelligence Committee, right? So he's been getting a lot. I think he was the one that went up against Tucker Carlson last night. Is that, am I imagining that? Or he did, right? Yeah, I think he had the uh, the spirited back and forth with with Tucker Carlson. Uh, it was it was tense. It was entertaining, entertaining viewing. Uh, but Schiff told an audience at Brookings, which is the among the most prominent left leading. It's not straight up left. It's it's not like the Nation or Salon, which are basically uh, wanting to run around and you know, preach about the uh, communist international and how that's uh, the way of the future. Uh, it, it's not it's not hard left, but it's left of center. He was at Brookings and he was speaking about uh, the limits to publishing stolen material. Play clip 37. I'm not saying that you should never publish stolen material. There may be stolen material that is of such a high public value that uh, it can't help but be published. But I do think the context always ought to be present. So there are some times when publishing stolen stuff is like, I just think this is interesting because with Trump's tax returns, we're all told, well, this is this is fine to do. This is fine to publish information knowingly and willfully that is protected under law, but they're just going to publish it anyway. As I pointed out to you yesterday, there is no exception in law for journalists to publish classified information, although so many journalists I know think that there is. Um, and the hypocrisy that we see playing out with this whole debate and discussion, it's <laughs> hypocrisy is a word you're going to hear a lot of when it comes to Democrats. And, and I do agree with those who will say that it's not a uh, it's not something that slows the Democrats down on this, because if the ultimate pursuit is just power is to be in charge. Well, you don't care about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like for, you know, for jerks, for losers. Who cares? So while we look at this and say, oh, well, the hypocrisy, we talk about principles and hypocrisy, they're like, yeah, wh- whatever. It works for us now. It worked today. Perfect uh, distillation of this is the, the Harry Reid attitude of, yeah, so I lied about Romney on the floor of the Senate. Did he win? No. Therefore, it was justified. That's a perfect uh, encapsulation of a widespread mentality among the Democrats and the Democrat Party. Uh, but so Trump tax returns, that's... Uh, that's something that. Uh, by the way, also I've pointed out on social media when when some of this initially some of the tax return issue came up that okay so we've managed to get some leaks of Trump tax returns already. Never had anybody leak uh, Barack Obama's 
records at Columbia University. What I think is fascinating about that is that automatically they jump to the the conclusion, well, if you're bringing that up, you must be a birther or you must be trying to smear the president's place of birth or whatever. No, I just think it's interesting that Barack Obama didn't have to release those and that the press just stayed away from that. They were yeah, whatever. And you could say, well, Buck, what what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Like Hillary Clinton style. At this point, what difference? Uh, but it made a difference for John Kerry and George W. Bush and Al Gore and go down the line of all the presidents before who released. You see, nobody really cared when they found out that those presidents had mediocre to less than mediocre grades. And the only reason I think it would have been interesting to see Obama's grades is that we were told that he was effectively a genius. And I mean, I'm not saying Obama was a terrible student. I just would like to see. I have a feeling that given the, the, the transfer from Occidental to Columbia University, you know, I mean, maybe he was like getting B's. But that's why I think they didn't release them, because it would have hurt the narrative that this is the most brilliant uh, scholar president in the history of the United States. Uh, but you'll notice the media dropped that, and there was no leak of that information and nobody calling for that. So I just think it's interesting with the tax returns. Yeah, sometimes publishing stolen stuff. You know, Adam Schiff says it's OK. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK, as you just heard them say. Uh, I want to just talk a bit about where where progressivism is heading and attach it to some policies here. Um, first of all, if, if you go back and, and read uh, some of the memoirs of those who have lived in totalitarian societies, one recurring theme, something that comes up, is that for a true believer in a totalitarian system or for one who believes that the state has all answers, the state is everything, and nothing can be outside the state, uh, it's not enough to change your opinions on a certain subject. Uh, it's not even enough to hold the proper approved opinions. You have to view the orthodoxy of the state, the progressive orthodoxy, as the absolute truth. And in fact, in addition to that, to really cross over properly and to be fully recognized and accepted by your progressive comrades. You have to find ways to convince yourself that you always believed whatever you believe now, even if that means lying to yourself about whatever you used to believe. And anything other than that would be called or considered deviationist, to be one who deviates from the orthodoxy and the progressive norms. So, but this is very important. It, it's not enough for you to just say today, for if, when you're talking about a true progressive, a true statist, and this is evidenced in, uh, you, you can see cases of this with writers from within totalitarian societies. It's not just enough to say, you know, yes, we all pray to the dear leader, or yes, Comrade Stalin is the, the future of the revolution. And every, No, you have to say that that's what you've always believed. Because the moment that you accept that you thought something else in the past, one, you have shown yourself to be suspect and highly imperfect. And two, you might start to ask questions. Well, why did I believe that then? 
and believe something else now. That's just logical. No, you have to believe what they tell you to believe today, and you really have to convince yourself you've always believed that. And that's a terrifying thought. I mean, it, it is the death of the mind. It is, uh, that, that is what is truly totalitarian. It's not enough for them to just control what you can do day to day and to have your, to live under the threat of constant force and to have no freedom. They also have to exert absolute mind control over you. And I, I know that when we talk about transgender issues and transgender rights, there's always this part of me that wants to start off with a, a preamble of sorts, and I've done this in the past, and I'll do it, I guess, right now, that someone should never be bullied or picked on or mistreated because of any life choice that is within the law, right? And if it's not within the law, they shouldn't be bullied or picked on, they should be arrested. But any life choice someone's making that's within the law, they shouldn't be uh, mistreated, that's uh, unkind, uh, dare I even say unchristian. That's not a term you hear very often these days, at least not in mass media. Um, you should never be unkind to somebody. And I think it's also fair to point out that kindness is our first, our first obligation to each other. But that said, uh, the problem that I have with what's happening in the transgender movement around the, around the English-speaking world and in this country is that it demands of me that I be a party to a lie. It demands of me that I subject myself to saying things, to agreeing to things that I know to be false. And I'm uncomfortable with that. And in the recent years we've seen on this issue, uh, there is no question that that circumstances that even five years ago we would have been told that is a preposterous that is a completely absurd suggestion. Now, now you're told, well, you better, you better accept that now. And we're supposed to act like we should have always accepted this, that this has always been what is true. Oh, uh, one example of this even just comes up with how Obama didn't touch transgender school bathroom use policy until seven and a half years into his presidency. But he was always in favor of this policy, of course. That's, that must have been what he always thought, but he just waited until the very, very end and left this policy in place. Uh, I have a problem both with being forced to say things that are a lie, uh, being forced to bend the knee and pretend something's true that is not, and also with that, of course, to really avoid scorn and derision and to avoid cries or, or accusations of bigotry or insensitivity or hatred or any number of things. You hold the right position now and you pretend like you've always held that position. You're never supposed to talk about what you used to think. The assumption is you've always thought that. You're supposed to always have thought that. And with transgenderism, that a woman can become a man or a man can become a woman, This is we're now taught this as though it has always been a, an absolute truth. This has always been reality. And it is just not. And this plays out in different ways, but we see this and the madness of progressivism and the mentality that it, it fosters in people, um, that those who know nothing about the science of this, that know nothing about, well, science in general, but they love to talk about science because it's a buzzword for uh, progressivism. You know, the, the smart people can make all the decisions for all of us. And if you don't agree to the smart people make all the decisions for you, well, clearly you're not smart. That's the way that that's the way the logic circle goes over there.
I have a couple of stories that made me think about this now. Um, and uh, one of them, uh, they're, they're both outside the country, but I think we could see it happening. It has happened here, too. So these are just examples of what is happening all over the Western uh, English-speaking world. First, you have a weightlifter in New Zealand who is the first ever transgender athlete to represent New Zealand and come away with a weightlifting victory. Now, this is where we run into reality and we're told to ignore it, and I'm not comfortable doing that. It's not because I'm trying to be mean. It's not because I'm encouraging bigotry or bullying or any of the things that the left will throw out there. I just like to deal with what is true as it is true and, and not play games with that. Uh, male biology is different from female biology. Male biology is uh, going to give, for anyone who is training as an athlete, an advantage as a function of biology over a female because of what boils down to biochemistry. Uh, testosterone levels and uh, estrogen levels, and these are, you know, we are all really just walking around, you know, uh, you can take the Janie Lam, Janie Lam, uh, sorry, Jamie Lannister view from Game of Thrones. We're just sacks of meat. Uh, but we're all just bags of walking chemicals, really. We're all just moving around. And I know, of course, we're all made in the image of God and we have souls. I'm not talking about that. But biologically speaking, chemistry, our internal chemistry is very important. Our, our brain chemistry and also uh, all of the rest of the bodily functions that are determined by our chemistry. And to ignore that or to pretend that's not real is just to defy science and reality. And that you have a female, a, a, sorry, a male athlete who claims to be female who is winning an athletic competition, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. And with weightlifting, maybe people are more willing to uh, look the other way and just say, well, this is the way things are now. And I've always believed this, of course, because I want to be in good standing. It's like we're all sitting around trying to uh, get a pat on the head from uh, the central committee of the Communist Party here, because that's the way it used to be. You know, it wasn't enough to just say, "Yeah, I agree with you." It's, "Yeah, I agree with you." And I've always agreed with you because this is this has always been true. And see, there's an additional level. It's it's beyond just acceptance. It's the celebration and the perpetuation of a false idea. And with transgenderism and this uh, man who is of the belief that he is a woman competing in an athletic competition uh how can anyone think that this is fair i don't know what other word to use how can anyone think this is a good idea this is the way it's supposed to be and then when you go to another story this might hammer home the point even more and this might make it even more clear in the united kingdom you have a man who has been convicted uh, is a convicted rapist who has gone through a transgender process and is now being housed in an all-women's prison. These are examples that e even in the, in the uh, close to six years now I've been doing media that I've put out there before and said, well, how can you tell me this won't happen? And, oh, I would get the emails and the messages. Oh, how, how dare you? That'll never happen. We're just trying to stop people from being bullied in school. No, no. Now we have biological males, which is really repetitive. We have males competing as females, and we are supposed. If we, it's not just enough to say that you don't care or 
no, no, if this comes up, you better say, uh, if you're going to be in good standing with the Democrat Party, with Hollywood, with the media, you better celebrate this. Uh, They're going to rub your face in this. They're not going to let you just turn a blind eye and say, well, it's not my problem, I don't care. Uh, The moment that it comes up around you, you're supposed to accept this, celebrate this, and forget everything that you knew beforehand. Um, But the athletic competition, okay, fine. When you look at mixed martial arts, though, where there has been a male competing as a female, I mean, that, that to me is just, it's just appalling. I mean, you've got a man, you've got a man who's, who's beating up women as a form, as a form of entertainment in a ring. I mean, this is not, this should not be okay to anybody. And of course, his incredible record in the ring is not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Uh, you had the most comprehensive study ever done of, and this is, this is not about transgenderism, but the most comprehensive study ever done by the Marine Corps showed that we're, we keep being told, oh, well, the standards will be the same. Well, men dramatically and overwhelmingly outperform women in the physical tasks of the infantry. There's a biological difference that manifests itself in very real ways. But we've got now male athletes competing as female athletes because they're trying to erase that biological distinction. And I, I know I keep drawing upon former communists and former communists writing here to make make some of these points. Um, But the eradication of the difference between the sexes, the eradication of the family, this is all this is all Marxist, er, early Marxist doctrine, early Marx and Engels, uh, you know, marriage is slavery. A lot of the stuff that's been adopted by the left, even in this country, in contemporary ways, you can trace it all the way back and say, oh, wow, that sounds a lot like early Communist Party doctrine within the Soviet Union. Uh, and it, and it is, and the destruction of the family and the destruction of the distinctions between genders is a part of an ultra-statist society. So none of, again, none of this is surprising. But you have women competing in men's athletic competitions, and you have women now. I'm sorry, uh, men competing in women's. That I, I might have gone the wrong way. Men competing in women's athletic competitions, and you have. Men being housed in female prisons who have a history of violence against women, rapists in this case. And this is what is considered to be fair and just and normal among the left, you can call them liberals, progressives, whatever definition you care to use. We are are being drawn down a pathway of madness, and all madness starts with a rejection of truth. Uh, but this is crazy, and that you have people who have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, if I started to ask them to lay out for me the International Olympic Committee's regulations on female hyperandrogenism, they'd look at me like, uh? They have no idea what I'm talking about. Because now you've got the Olympic Committee even looking at, well, we're going to measure hormone levels. and No, we really don't. Men should compete against men. Women should compete against women. Biology matters. Biology makes a difference. And this erasing of the lines between male and female is just part of a much larger effort to create a society that we all have to live in where the state gets to determine the truth. And you have to accept what they say the truth is, not what actually is true. All right. uh, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We will be right back. Very interesting in the New York Times. Uh, 
how Americans think about climate change in six maps. I, I want to walk you through a little bit of this. And I, I may not finish. I may come back to this after uh, the break because I find this to be really, ooh, very, uh, very delicious reading here. Uh, how Americans think about climate change in six maps. And then it goes into this. Americans overwhelmingly believe that global warming is happening and that carbon emissions should be scaled back, but fewer are sure that the changes will harm them personally. This is data by Yale researchers that have been put into these maps or heat maps to look at uh, the density of different occurrences, right? So darker color for whatever the color is they choose means more people or more people without opinion. Um, and I know I'm describing maps on radio, which is kind of difficult, but let me just start with how they, well, how they start. How Americans think about climate change. And the first line is, Americans overwhelmingly believe that global warming is happening. Which, which is it? I, is it climate change or is it global warming? Uh, this is not, uh, th this is <laughs> uh, not something that I think is irrelevant or unimportant. Um, this is not something that we can just skip over because the, the language here really matters. They're doing polling and they're saying to people, well, do you believe in global warming? Do you believe in climate change? Climate change is a, I don't know what the definition of it really is. And people say, oh, he doesn't know the definition. No, but what the climate is always changing. So when someone says, do you believe in climate change? A natural reaction to that is going to be, well, yeah, I guess. And they say, well, no, climate change means that there is an impending catastrophic global uh, event that is coming our way or a series of global events coming our way because of CO2 emissions in the air. Um, no, I, I don't believe that. And these maps, but it's interesting, isn't it? They switch back and forth between climate change and global warming. Well, which one is it? Warming is a very straightforward concept. And if their data shows a drop in warming in any given year, then they would have to explain that. Much easier to say climate change because and people have glibly said, well, you know, climate change is weather, but that is true. And if you take the time, and I don't recommend it because it's highly boring, but I've, I've read uh, not the most recent, but the second most recent, I believe, international, or sorry, intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC report. They say that climate is a, a decoupled, nonlinear chaos system, more or less, which to math and science mortals like myself just means it's really, really complicated. It's really, really complicated, um, which is a, a nice way of saying we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen here because we don't know. But trust us when we say that you should hand over a tremendous amount of control over your life and over your economy and everything else that's happening um, because of climate change. Um, that's... They're asking for uh, quite a leap of faith, I think, with all of this. Uh, but in these maps, it shows exactly what you would think, which is uh, that adults who, American adults who believe cl climate change will harm them, or global warming is actually the, the verbiage they use more frequently. Global warming will harm people in the United States. The Democrat strongholds are where you see a lot of people worried about global warming. And the redder, in terms of Republican uh, Republican areas of the country, the redder the state, the redder the region of the state, the less likely it is in general for people to be particularly worried about global warming. And this just mirrors what we already know, which is that just like the debate over guns and the debate over climate change and many other issues, but those are two 
particularly uh, powerful examples, I think. It has not it, for many people, for most people that have strong opinions on this. It's not about the issue. Um, on the left, the whole purpose of holding the position is that it allows you to think you're better, smarter, wiser, nicer, kinder, more informed than other people. On on the left, that's what this is really about. Um, this is why they don't just have a disagreement with people that believe in the Second Amendment, for example, they have an antipathy. They have a disdain for, for those who are part of that very large segment of America that has some form of gun culture. Um, and with climate change, it's the same thing. It's not that they really worry that much that their houses in Malibu are going to be swamped by the rising seas. It's they believe in climate change because climate change is what makes them better and smarter and more worthwhile than those other people who, you know, voted for Donald Trump and go to NASCAR and drink Budweiser and all that other stuff that liberals sneer at in the rest of the country. So I thought these maps were interesting, but not for the reasons that the New York Times would think. Uh, and it did, I guess, confirm what I already knew. Ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Everybody, we're joined by Glenn Reynolds. He's a University of Tennessee law professor and... Uh, a member of the USA Today's Board of Contributors. He has an op-ed in USA Today, uh, The Suicide of Expertise. Glenn, great to have you. Glenn, great to have you, but I don't think we do. Uh, I think we, we had Glenn, and he was going to hang out with us, and then we lost Glenn. And so now I think we'll have to see if we can get him back on. I don't know. Whenever, whenever a guest calls in on the Skype connection, it's a, it's, it can be a little, it can be a little dicey. I like to kick it old school. Landline phones, everybody. Landline phones are the way to go. Well, here's the the idea that I wanted to talk to Glenn about, which I'll just speak to you about for a few minutes myself here, and that is uh, a follow up to our conversation with Tom Nichols, who has his book about uh, expertise that we talked about. Um, and how he believes, the thesis of his book is that people uh, reject expertise. Um, they, um, they decide that uh, in that immortal New Yorker cartoon where you have a guy saying, oh, these pilots are out of touch with regular people like us. Who thinks I should fly the plane? Uh, which was interesting because the reactions to that were very much, it was really like a Rorschach test in the form of a cartoon because the reactions to that told us a lot about where one stands on the issue of the elites in society. And it's, it's very interesting to watch this, uh, watch this continue to be a, a topic of discussion. Here's how I think it matters. Uh, first of all, as I've been talking to you, it's like I'm bringing the whole show here full circle about how the central problem is central planning um, and that this is what really the, uh, the ideology of the Democrat Party in this country, which which largely uh, borrows from social democrat ideology in other countries, it's very similar in a lot of ways, uh, is based on, in large part, the notion that there will be people who 
are better at things than you and they should make those decisions for you. And the track record of that, especially in the context, I'm not talking about, you know, there's there's a doctor that you meet with as an individual and that you will decide what the best health care, of course, that that's sensible and that's a good idea. But one doctor in D.C. deciding what everybody should do across the country, whether it's about heart disease or it's about uh, dietary guidelines, you start to see how this this begins to create its own problems. And the track record of even very smart people, whether we're talking about those who run the Fed and Fannie and Freddie and oh yeah, all that with the financial crisis versus those who, uh, or their, their track record rather, is not particularly good. And, and in recent years, I think people have started to feel like do we, um, that that's a problem that should be addressed. So this is the other side of that equation. I believe we have Glenn who will want to talk to us about his USA Today op-ed. Now, Glenn... Is that you, sir? Hi. Hey, we got can you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. I like it. So let's awesome. talk Let's talk a bit about your piece of suicide of expertise. I was doing a little groundwork uh, on this, be- or a little laying the groundwork beforehand. Uh, you walk us through this. By the way, we did have Tom Nichols, who you mentioned in the first paragraph here. We had him on, I think, about a week ago. So you take yeah. a different view on this. Yeah, well, in fact, my piece sort of was kicking off from a— uh, tweet that Foreign Affairs sent where they said that Americans reject the advice of experts so as to insulate their fragile egos from ever being told they're wrong. And that was plugging a piece by Tom Nichols. Uh, there's certainly some people with fragile egos who don't want to be told they're wrong. Uh, we see a lot of that on college campuses. Uh, but, you know, as I said, the experts don't have the kind of authority they used to have because they don't have the kind of track record they used to have. I mean, uh, 50 years ago, the experts had given us vaccines, antibiotics, jet airplanes, nuclear power, and space flight. And the idea that they might really know what was best seemed, you know, fairly plausible. Uh, but now we look at what they've done for us lately, and not only do we never get our moon bases or flying cars like they promised us, uh, which is a sore point with me, uh, but they did bring us, you know, Vietnam, uh, as Kat explained in uh, David Halberstam's Hamel- The Best and the Brightest. Uh, they brought us the financial crisis. Uh, they brought us federal nutrition guidelines that just seem to make people fatter and fatter. And in foreign affairs, which you think the people at foreign affairs would pay the most attention to, uh, history's been especially awful. I mean, they, uh, you know, I, I was actually just talking about Susan Rice and how she and uh, Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton are maybe the most disastrous troika in foreign policy history. But she's back in the Washington Post with an op-ed today saying, if you can believe it, that uh, the president shouldn't lie to the people uh, like, you know, she did about Benghazi and stuff. Uh Glenn, Syria, I, have to say, I, I think part of this, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. You were going to say I no, assume that Syria was uh, a debacle in the Obama administration, and it certainly was. Um, but as I see it, uh, and this is from somebody who looked at going to different graduate programs uh, before I decided to go into media instead. You know, I decided to just join the circus instead of actually uh, <laughs> getting an advanced degree. So we'll see. We'll see how that works out. Uh, but there are all these different areas where experts, I mean, I think and this applies specifically to some of the things you're talking about, the social sciences, politics, where expertise is a very uh, amorphous concept to begin with. L- l- let me give you what I mean by that. And, and foreign policy, uh, what does that even mean? To have worked in foreign policy does not necessarily mean you're good at foreign policy or smart. It means you've got a job somewhere in the government where you're working on issues that touch on foreign policy, right? Uh, to have even been a very senior government official on 
whether you're talking about somebody who runs the State Department or somebody who's a national security advisor, does not mean that you are truly expert in the Hillary Clinton was not a foreign policy expert when she became yeah. Secretary of State. Uh, by any normal definition of real expertise, people say, oh, well, she was a senator. And, yeah, yeah, OK, whatever. Her staff gave her talking points about things. Great. Uh, so that, I, I think that has to be a part of this discussion as well. And I wanted you to weigh in on that. I mean, I've had I took soci- a sociology class in college and I just had to laugh. I was like, this is this person has a Ph.D. to tell me this. This is he's telling me nothing. This is just all debatable nonsense. Well, you know, one of my readers actually uh, commented on my blog uh, pretty intelligently. He said uh, expertise worked until about the mid 60s when people realized that as long as you could claim you were an expert, you'd have a lot more influence than you otherwise would have. Uh, so they credentialed themselves in a variety of ways to give themselves more influence in politics, uh, but they didn't waste their time actually learning stuff anymore because that wasn't their goal. And I think that's about right. Yeah, I, 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 as a uh, commentator, I don't try to take up the mantle of being a journalist, uh, but as a commentator, I have to say I find it interesting to watch so many journalists who are in a profession where the the barriers to entry, especially in the Internet age, are can you read, can you write, reasonably well on both of those fronts. Uh, and then you, you you can do this job. Of course, it's very hard, and there are people who do it much better than others, but you can do it. And I think that there's a uh, there's an irritation among the journalistic establishment with people recognizing that more and more, that, the, that there's no magic to what people are doing. Yeah, there's some general guidelines that I don't think a lot of the major newsrooms take very seriously, but uh, the media likes to think of themselves as expert in doing media, and you know anybody with an internet internet account and or you know IP address and Twitter and Facebook can basically be become their own media brand now become their own journalist. And uh, what I think journalists particularly hate is uh, readers and viewers can judge you by your track record, and they don't like that because their track record isn't great, and they'd much prefer to have a monopoly, so it doesn't matter. Uh, now, what is your recommendation then? Do you think that experts should be? Uh, that, that I mean, do you think that you agree that there needs to be a different sense of what an expert is, that the credentialing should be that people shouldn't be impressed with? Yeah, I was told, for example, don't go to journalism school because you become a journalist. Right. I, I got a job at the CIA without getting a master's in international relations or anything, because if you want to work in the intelligence community, the best thing to do is work in the intelligence community. I, I feel like that's been lost now. Everyone's now expected to get an undergrad degree and to get some professional degree above that to be, quote, an expert. But just doing something and doing it well is its own form of expertise, I think. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, the pressure nowadays is to be credentialed, uh, not even necessarily to be educated. Uh, And that's not that valuable. I mean, there's an old story about H.L. Mencken when he was a columnist. Uh, People from the State Department came and wanted to talk to him because they thought he had special sources of information on foreign affairs. And he said, well, no, I just you know, read all the newspapers and think about them and compare what people say now to what they were saying a year ago. And apparently that was a real cutting edge technique then. And it still kind of is. Yeah, you can if you read enough of the uh, front pages and, and if you were to spend enough of your time reading major news sources, you have a really good sense of what's going on in the world. And, and you'll know, you know, I know people that have never been to North Korea and I've heard their analysis of North Korea. And I'm like, that's pretty astute. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, and then, of course, you could be right in the belly of the beast getting classified briefings all day long and not have the slightest idea what you're doing. And we've certainly seen plenty of evidence of that. Yeah, I know total idiots who had the highest level clearance one could have. And I was always amazed at and I'm not going to just call out members of Congress here, but I mean, I'm not going to not do that. I was amazed at how little some of them would retain. Yeah, well, you know, there's no IQ test for Congress. 
I know. It's it's an astonishing thing to watch. Uh, so, Glenn, anything else you are going to be working on this week or you want to direct people to it? I, I got your piece here on USA Today. Well, I mean, uh, I I would encourage you. I've got a post on my blog now about uh, Susan Rice's audacity in saying that, that uh, it's troubling when the president twists the truth, uh, given her record uh, on a number of events. You know, they sent her out to the Sunday shows to peddle a lie that they knew to be a lie at the time, that the Benghazi attacks were caused by a YouTube video. And I think it's actually pretty disgraceful that the Washington Post gave her that spot and that headline, uh, given her track record. We hear all the time from people that, you know, members of the Trump administration who've lied should be cut out. You know, Kellyanne Conway shouldn't be allowed on MSNBC anymore or whatever. But they don't treat the Obama people that way. And the reason they don't treat the Obama people that way is if they didn't have lying Obama officials on, they wouldn't have any ex-Obama officials on. And I have to say, when you when you look at uh, the way that people talk about uh, fake news now and then you'll have I, I've seen I've seen Brian Williams segments recently where he's talking about journalistic <laughs> ethics. I've seen Dan Rather brought on CNN to yes. talk about how to be a real journalist. And I'm like, no, this is not acceptable, folks. That, that goes back to the part about remembering what people said last year. They don't like that. Yeah, I know. It can be tough. Um, Glenn Reynolds is a UT law professor, author of The New School, How the Information Age Will Save American Education from Itself. And he's got a piece up on USA Today where he is a columnist. Glenn, thanks for making the time. Have a great uh, rest of the day. Thanks for having me. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break and close out the show strong. I don't talk that much about football here on the show. Well, for one, it's not football season, so that's and, and I haven't been on the show during football season. So I, I suppose that all makes makes a bit of sense in and of itself. Uh, but football is, of course, uh, football players in the headlines right now for well, a couple of reasons. And Mr. Colin Kaepernick is having trouble finding a, another place that will pay him, another football team that will pay him tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and this comes after last season he made quite a stir by taking a knee during the national anthem, which a lot of people found to be very disrespectful. I, including myself, I think that it's a fa- it's fascinating to watch this play out where people um, want the benefits of free speech when they think it's going their way, and then they want to claim that there's censorship or there's some nefarious something or other going on the moment that a company or some organization that does not owe you, does not have to hire you or pay you anything— and can take your speech and your public pronouncements into account when it's making decisions about hiring, the moment it goes against someone, then it's all the the martyr routine. Oh, look what they're doing to me. It's so terrible. I'm just standing up for truth and justice. Like, no, you are kneeling. You're kneeling to the national anthem, and uh, that bothers people for reasons that I don't think I have to go into here. They're pretty self-explanatory. But Trump, during the rally last night in Louisville, which I enjoy saying. I'm getting closer and closer, I'm told, by Kentucky natives who listen to the show. They're like, you're getting closer. Louisville. Uh, that Ka- that Trump mentioned Kaepernick last night during the rally out in Kentucky, and this is what Trump said. There was an article today, it was reported, that NFL owners don't want to pick him up because they don't want to get a nasty tweet from Donald Trump. Do you believe that? I just saw that. I just saw that. 
I said, if I remember that one, I'm going to report it to the people of Kentucky. Because they like it when people actually stand for the American flag, right? Trump understands his audience. Uh, his rallies are incredibly entertaining. The, the energy of the crowd really comes through on the screen when you're watching it. It even comes through in audio when you're listening to it. Uh, but, but yeah, the, you have the President of the United States mentioning this Kaepernick issue. It, isn't it incredible when you think about how now any issue in the right or in, in a specific political context, any small gesture can turn into something that is a national news story? Uh, and in this case, you've got a very famous guy who's doing something quite publicly. But I'm just saying, in general, you wouldn't think that the president of the United States would weigh in on the contract troubles of an NFL. I'm told he's like not he's not that good. Right. Like he's not that. Yeah, no, my my team here because they, they know the football. Uh, they're telling me that he's not really uh, any any great, great stuff out on the field anyway. Uh, but this is you're going to see more of this where people take these positions and they like the attention. They like to stand. I, this is now with social media, especially there's an amplifying effect of it. And you can get a short term, you know, especially playing the martyr role. You know, oh, look what's going on. I, I'm just speaking up for, you know, my truth or I'm just the one that's I'm taking the knee during the national anthem. I'm just trying to be to be honest about how I feel about that. And then. You have people on your side who are, of course, going to come out and say, oh, well, you know, look at this. He's be he's being so brave. But there's a, a corollary to that or there's an equal and opposite reaction to it from the other side as well. People see this and they think to themselves, well, in the case of Ka Kaepernick, you know, what a jerk. And what is he really taking a knee for? We start to ask questions. What are you really taking a knee for exactly? Uh, you believe that there's racist oppression in this country? Do you think you're taking a knee is going to make anything better? Now, I also think it's uh, fair to point out that there have been other very political acts taken by uh, and by not just NFL players, professional athletes, and they tend to have to deal with the consequences of that. In many cases, they just let it go. Owners let it go. The teams let it go. It depends on what the specifics of the act are, what the moment is that we're referring to. Um, but the national anthem and taking a knee during that is just not something that the American people are over overwhelmingly. They're not going to be OK with that. They're not going to agree with you. They're not going to appreciate it. And they're actually going to look down on such an act of disrespect. And it is another example of an ideology that is left of center taking hold of someone in such a way that he or she believes that there can be a risk that, that there can be a risk-free political stance that you can have all the benefits without any of the drawbacks uh, he didn't think that this was going to backfire him. and people are telling me by the way and maybe this is true that it's not even the take in the knee that's the reason that he's not getting picked up by the teams it's that he's overpaid and he's not that good which is also hey that's the free market at work um, but I, I do think it's interesting to see this now and others not just in professional sports, but other celebrities, other famous people may just take a moment to stop and think about what the long-term ramifications of using their non-political position in the public eye to advance a political ideology or political point that may not be particularly well thought out. All right, that's going to be it for the show today. As I said, please download Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. You can listen on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Until tomorrow... 
Shield's high.